0: Thank you to Zach and Chris and the team. And uh, now let's follow up by getting into God's Word ourselves. If you'll stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Genesis, we'll be in chapter 4, reading verses 16 through 26. Pastor Bruce continues his lessons through Genesis this morning, a lesson entitled From Blood to Babel in a world without God, but not a world without hope. Again, we're going to read Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 through 26. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore, bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, To him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just, uh, Lord, we rejoice in the power of your word. Lord, we rejoice rejoice in its truth. And God, we just pray that you would open our hearts to, uh, Lord, to see you, uh, to see your working again in in Genesis. Lord, how... uh, mankind continues to uh, to struggle lord to go our own way but you provide hope lord and just uh, uh, renew us today through your word and uh, may we be pointed to christ and the ultimate hope we have in him in jesus name amen a few years back
1: ravi zacharias wrote a book Pro A book entitled, Can Man Live Without God? In his book, he takes a look backwards at the attempts to build a world without God. And then he kind of surveys what's going on even in our world today. He reaches this convincing conclusion that mankind will never be successful in his attempts to build a world without God. God. And yet that's what we see right here in Genesis chapter 4. We see Cain's attempt to build a world without God. After God pronounced judgment on Cain for killing his brother Abel, Cain turned his back on the very presence of God and he moved eastward into the land of Nod, which means wandering. And though Cain bore this Gracious mark of mercy of God's protection. He left Eden with anger in his heart and blood on his hands, but he would show God. He would build a world without God, apart from the presence of God, in rebellion against God. And so in the brief history that Moses gives us here of Cain and the city that he built, we learn much about what happens. Even today, when we try to build a world, try to make a life without God. Notice this in your, in your notes here, if you want to pull that insert out of your bulletin, you're welcome to follow along, or you can just follow along on the stream behind me. But here's a question to ponder as we get into this. What happens to society when it rebels against God? What happens to, to people in general? What happens to families? that try to build their family without God? What happens to individuals who try to make a life without God? And so from a a macro perspective all the way to the micro, the answer is the same. At first it prospers, but then it perishes. That is the story. That is the theme of Genesis chapter 4 here. So what happened to Cain after he left God and his family in such angry defiance? Believe it or not, Cain prospered. As Alan Ross has noted in his commentary on Genesis, Cain's line of descendants took the lead in producing cities, producing music, weapons, agricultural tools, in short, civilization. But it was a dark civilization. It was a dark prosperity. It was a world without God. Paradoxically, the beginning of civilization descended even as it ascended. It fell even as it rose. It prospers here in Genesis 4, as we will see. But then it perishes in the flood in Genesis chapter 7, which we will see in a few weeks from now. And so the history of the world is really the story of nations and empires and countries that prospered and then later turned to dust. Some nations declined slowly before their demise. Others were destroyed and conquered suddenly. Few nations, get this, have lasted longer than 200 years. It was once said that the sun never set on the British Empire, and now it does. As the West began a long decline, Napoleon made his move. Later, Hitler strove to build a German empire, and then came the USSR. And prior to all this, you trace history in the Old Testament period. There had been the kingdoms of David to be succeeded by Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. History shows us that many civilizations and cultures have risen and yet fallen. Why? It comes as a result of attempting to build a world without God. There are two contrasting statements that express the central message of this truth right here in Genesis 4. You see the first statement here. We've alluded to it already in verse 16 look at it again with me it says then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and he dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden in other words Cain at this point is making a deliberate decision to reject God and move away from God but then we have a contrasting statement the antithesis of that statement at the very conclusion of the chapter here in chapter 4, you drop down to verse 26, and it recounts the birth of Seth and his son Enosh, and it says, Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so, really, what we have here are two ways to live. And so, as you consider, as you evaluate your own life, I would evaluate it in terms of of two ways to live. We either live the way of Cain, or we live and follow in the line of Seth and his descendants, calling on the name of the Lord. Over the course of life, we will either reject God by our choices, we will either deliberately move away from him and stake our claim, if you will, build our life in the land of Nod, or we will call on the name of the Lord for our salvation, for our rescue, our deliverance, and we will seek first the kingdom of God. Two ways to live. And that's what Moses, as the author of Genesis, is showing us here in this chapter. And so let me just kind of, let's look at it, let's unpack it for the next few minutes and see what we learn from God's word here in application to our own lives, in how we live, how we try to make a life in this world, either with God or without God. Notice number one, the ungodly pursue civilization without God. The ungodly pursue civilization without God. We've already seen over the course of these weeks, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that God gave mankind the cultural commission to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. And we see here in verse 17, it says, And Cain knew. His wife. And of course, that word no or new in, in the Bible is a euphemism for sexual relations with one's wife or husband. And so that immediately raises a question some of you perhaps are wondering about now. Well, where in the world did Cain get his wife? I mean, there was Adam and Eve, and then Cain, he killed his brother Abel. Where did his wife come from? Well, Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, states that during Adam's long life, He and Eve had many, many sons and many, many daughters. In fact, one scholar estimated that in Adam's, get this, 930 years of life, he could easily have had over one million descendants. And so Cain, more than likely, either married one of his sisters or perhaps even a niece, which we know later on in human history, God would forbid that to happen. He would forbid incest. We learn now in verse 17, notice what else it says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, Cain here is doing his part to fill the earth. And then we read in the rest of verse 17, And he built a city. So Cain had a family, and now he's building the city. So now he's doing his part to subdue the earth. This is what we are supposed to do. This is the cultural commission that God gave to humanity. We're to build cities and we are to form civilizations. But remember, we are made in whose image? We're made in God's image and to do this as his image bears and to shine forth his glory, not our own. And to spread the fame of his name all across the earth, not our fame. But look what Cain does now in verse 17. It says he built a city and he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And so Cain's, here's the context you need to understand. Cain's building a city was an act of rebellion against God. Who cursed him. You remember earlier in chapter 4, cursed him to be this restless wanderer as The punishment for his sin of killing his brother Abel. You read that in verse 12. And so Cain's city, in other words, here's the picture of it. It is an in-your-face statement to God. I can do anything I want. I can live my life any way I want. I can make it in life, God, without you. That's what Cain is saying with the building of his city and naming it after his son. Cain's city was a means of procuring his own security as well as making a name for himself in defiance of God's judgment on his life as this restless wanderer. And so Cain dedicates this city not to the Lord, but to his son Enoch. Now, do you detect just a little bit of self-glorification going on in his heart? self-preservation even. Cain is not building a city that glorifies the name of God, but one that glorifies his name and the name of his son. We'll actually see something similar, very similar, later on in this series. In fact, at the end of the series, in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, when the people at that time said in chapter 11 verse 4, listen, They say, hey, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Even today, this is what drives our city building and our city living. People are seeking to make a name for themselves and to do it without God. Cain rebelled against God's judgment to be a restless wanderer, and so he settled down, he had a family, and he built a city, all in an effort to prove, I can make it without God. But Cain failed to realize something. He failed to realize you can't hide from God in the city. And he failed to realize that the city cannot cover up the emptiness of your soul. And so we see in Cain City here the escalation of a godless civilization. We see the beginning here of a world without God. Now, let's just stop here for a moment, take a step back, because there may be some of us who are thinking that because of this, that cities are the problem. Perhaps even the city we live in here. But the problem of a city is not the city itself, but how a city magnifies sin and suffering. Yes, cities are contaminated by sin. Why? Because they are populated with people. But God loves the cities. Do you realize that? God loves the cities. Man, all through the scriptures you see this. In fact, you see in the Old Testament that God loves the city of Jerusalem. So much so, you fast forward to the New Testament, and when Jesus comes on the scene, he overlooks the city of Jerusalem, and he weeps. He weeps with compassion for the people in the city, and his heart is broken because they have turned their backs on God, even God's people. In the city of Jerusalem. God loves the city of Jerusalem. We even find in the New Testament, you go to the book of Jonah, and what is God doing there? He loves the city of Nineveh. He loves the people in Nineveh. So much so that he sends the prophet Jonah to go preach repentance so that they can be saved from God's judgment of sin. So that they can be rescued out of it. God loves the city because the cities are filled with people. Cain built the first city without God, and his descendants have been building cities without God ever since. And so what a challenge for our church, what an opportunity for our church here in the city to proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Is that not true? Man, that's what we are here for. We are here to shine a light, to bridge the gap, if you will, and to be a light of the gospel of Jesus Christ where God has planted us right here in this community. That is why we have some of the community outreach events that we have, to seek to be that light, to let people know, hey, we are here. The gospel shines here we're here for you. We want to serve you. We want to connect with you. And so as you know, we have Easter extravaganza, and this is something we're going to try something a little bit different, new. Instead of having our, our want to bash on Wednesday night, we're going to move it and make it a block party and, and hopefully invite and reach out to our whole community here. Invite them to come and be part of our block party on the Saturday before Labor Day weekend and do it in the evening time. Why? All for the reason of shining the light and say, hey, listen, the gospel shines here. We want to connect with you. We want to engage with you. We want to meet you. We want to invite you to come worship with us. Come hear the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because God loves the city, because God loves people. The escalation of a godless civilization, though, begins to rise with Cain. And there's two observations I want to draw out of this for you. Number one, notice this in your notes. Cultural discovery promotes the illusion of progress. Amazingly, and this is is utterly astounding, God's grace still persists in Cain's life as his line continues, his descendants continues. And so indeed, after several more generations, things are beginning to look a little promising for Cain. For here comes Lamech, the man with this brilliant family. Look at his boys here in verses 20 through 22. It says that Ada bore Jabal, He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naaman. Now these verses here, what Moses is doing for us, he's pointing out the discovery and the progress of human culture, believe it or not, in the line of Cain the one who has rebelled against God, the one who's trying to build a civilization without God. And so from his son's descendants, and specifically Lamech's, sons here. We find from Jubal comes agriculture in this breeding of livestock as he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And then from Jubal comes the fine arts of music as he was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And from Tubal Cain comes the development of industry and technology as he was an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. He's forming tools for plowing the ground, but also making weapons for killing your enemies, as we will see. You see what's going on here? Civilization is growing. Civilization is now producing art and technology and things that make life easier. And it's a mistake for us now to read here in Genesis 4 and conclude that human culture is a bad thing or that the ungodly cannot produce works that are of value. To the contrary, Cain's descendants birthed massive cultural advances that have enriched all of our lives even today. The entire world has benefited by modern agriculture, the flourishing of the arts, and by the incredible progress of technology in the last century. And these things are possible Because even sinful men and women still possess what? They are made in the image of God. That allows us as a humanity, if you will, to think, to create, to develop, and even to dream. And so these cultural advances, though, they should be devoted to the good of all people and even to the glory of God. However, civilizations' advances apart from God, as we know, have untold potential for evil. As one commentator says, along with growth in cultural advances is a growth in sin. And so as civilization develops and spreads, sin seizes new opportunities as well. In fact, in each of these blessings in civilization can turn into a nightmare without God. Just consider, children can become brazen murderers like Cain and Lamech. Cities can become hopeless places of self-preservation. And culture can be used to further our self-glorification. The problem isn't in these cultural advances. The problem is when cultural advances are without God. It gives the illusion that we, as mankind, we are somehow making progress in life. But it's a progress without any, get this, redemptive hope. Did you notice that in all the cultural advances of Cain and his descendants, there is not one shred of redemptive hope that is mentioned? Why? Because as one commentator states, culture, whether it's used or abused, offers no redemption. In other words, culture itself has no power to redeem sinful humanity. No combination of culture, whether it's agriculture, whether it's the arts, or whether it's technology, can save humanity. Dr. Bruce Riley Ashford writes in his book, Every Square Inch, every cultural context is structurally good, but directionally corrupt. In other words, he is saying culture fails to point people to, to lead people to redemption in Jesus Christ. In fact, I would encourage you to read, take home this afternoon, this week, and read the two inserts that are in your bulletin on how Christians should relate to and even engage with culture. What's our role? What's our responsibility as Christ followers in relation to culture and civilization? These inserts help seek to answer that question. What we see here is that cultural discovery, cultural advances promotes the illusion of progress in civilization. But we also see here in Genesis 4 that moral depravity exposes this illusion of progress. Now, what we see next is not a pretty picture. The moral depravity of Lamech is a picture of the moral depravity of humanity in general. The picture is bleak, but it is oh so clear in verses 23 and 24. Look at it with me. See it. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Out of this picture pops before our eyes three marks of moral depravity. And the first mark is this. Lamech deviates from God's design of marriage. Verse 19 tells us that Lamech took for himself how many wives? He took for himself two wives. He is now deviating from God's original design of marriage, and he now becomes the very first polygamist. Now instead of one man and one woman united together in marriage, sexual desire overrules God's design, and anything goes. God's design of marriage was now being perverted. It's being twisted as monogamy gave way to polygamy, which dominated society throughout the rest of Genesis and even the Old Testament, along with its disastrous results of these polygamous marriages. And while God tolerated polygamy in the Old Testament, listen, He never endorsed polygamy And the problems it caused are sufficient reason to conclude that polygamy never brings about God's purpose for marriage. And so the first moral depravity, the mark of it that we see is a deviation from God's design for marriage, which he clearly defined for us back in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account, which we looked at in detail. Number two, the second mark of moral depravity is Lamech disdains the value of human life. Next, we get a little sample here of what topped the music charts in early civilization. And it's the song of Lamech. This is the oldest song in the Bible. Lamech composes a little ditty about violence. His violence... When he says in verse 23, Ada and Zillah hear my voice, wise Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. Henry Blocher says, The horrendous song of Lamech glorifies the exaggerated lust for vengeance. Now, it's not that Lamech was just a bloodthirsty bully here. He was quite possibly the mayor of his city, and this quite likely was an expression of his code of law in the city. His song here oozes with violence and with vengeance. He actually celebrates his crime here in a song. Lamech kills in return for a wound. He now boasts about it. He boasts of killing a young man for merely wounding him. In fact, this Hebrew word for young man, it actually means a child. And so what a very cheap view of human life we see here. Lamech kills a kid in vengeance, and then he boasts about it in song. And think about this. Lamech's song must have been a woman's worst dream. The reference to his wives. In this violent context, points to the worst outworking of God's judgment pronounced back in Genesis 3, verse 16. When God said to Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And now Lamech's two wives suffer the humiliation of polygamy in their marriage to this brutal, remorseless man. Rather than shame, Lamech wore violence as a badge of honor, and such are the marks of moral depravity. We see a third mark, though, where Lamech not only disdains the value of human life, and he not only deviates from God's design of marriage, but now he actually derides the word of God. In other words, he mocks the word of God. The final stanza of Lamech's song, mocks God's word when it glories in exponential vengeance. Lamech sings in verse 24, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now what is Lamech doing here? Listen, he's mocking God. He's mocking what God told Cain back in verse 15. Lamech is boasting, "Ha, if God promises a sevenfold vengeance on the person who kills Cain, I guarantee that I, I myself, I will inflict a 77-fold vengeance on anyone who even hurts me, who even thinks about hurting me, who even looks at me crossways. I will take it out on you." Now what's missing? In the heart of Lamech. Forgiveness. There is absolutely no hint of forgiveness in his heart. Think about it. A young man, perhaps even a child, wounds him in what he do. He kills him. Lamech is a man of vengeance not forgiveness. And isn't it interesting then how the loss of moral righteousness gives way to the loss of capacity for forgiveness? Significantly, Jesus actually referenced this very text in Lamech's merciless song as a backdrop to teach his apostle, his disciple Peter, about the necessity of mercy and forgiveness. One day, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him in Matthew 18, 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus tells him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. This is exponential forgiveness. Remember what Jesus said in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so what we see here in the roots of Genesis chapter 4 is that Lamech's exponential for vengeance is answered later in the New Testament, by Jesus' exponential forgiveness. And so we see these marks of moral depravity in the very heart of Lamech. And what's in the heart, by the way, always comes out in our actions sooner or later. And it's a sad thing to see. In fact, it's a frightening thing to see what is in his heart and how it shows itself. Lamech is not a person you would want to have as a neighbor. You would not want to live next to this man. You would not want to work with him. Why? He is a violent, vengeful man. One commentator says Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. And so again, Moses is doing something for us here. He's giving us a picture in Cain's line of descendants, and specifically Lamech's here, and showing us that this is what is true of all humanity. It's no different today. We are so skilled in technological advances, and yet we are so steeped in moral failure. Satan says, sin against God, as he told Eve, and you will become what? You will become more than human. You will become like God. And now God is showing us here in Genesis 4 that just the opposite is true. When you sin, you become less than human, not more. This is the dehumanizing effect of sin, of the depravity of our sin nature that has been passed on now from Adam's sin. Rather depressing, isn't it? Rather sobering. It would be oh so depressing if the chapter ended with Lamech. But thankfully it does not. It ends with this glimmer of hope. Yes, the ungodly pursue civilization without God, and our moral depravity exposes that illusion of progress, but God does not leave us without hope. Notice this, number two, the godly proclaim redemption in worship of God. Civilizations rise and fall because of sin, but God always preserves a remnant of people who worship Him. And that's what we see in these last two verses of the chapter. Look at it with me in verses 25 and 26. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so notice a couple of observations here about the preservation of this godly remnant. Number one, the godly are committed to trusting the promises of God. They're committed to this. Satan tried to thwart, to stop God's promise to send a Savior through the seed of the woman when Cain killed his brother Abel. But what does God do? You cannot stop God's plan of redemption. God raised up another seed in Seth whose name Actually means appointed and so when Eve gave birth to Cain she thought he was the promised Savior who would crush the serpent's head when she said back in verse 1 of chapter 4 I have gotten a man from the Lord and even though she was mistaken it was a statement of her faith in God's promise Eve believed the promises of God but she gave birth to a murderer not a Savior now Just think about that for a moment. Because she could have grown very disillusioned at that point with God. She could have became very bitter against God. She could have rebelled against God in her own heart, like Cain. But in a different way, with bitterness and resentment. Because God, let's blame God, he allowed Cain to kill my appointed seed. The deliverer. But instead, she says, I believe God wants and he let me down. Why should I trust this time? That could have been what she said, but she didn't. Rather, Eve says, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Isn't it interesting that Eve recognized Seth as the replacement for Abel and not Cain? She knew that God cannot use Cain to fulfill his promise of the seed. And her faith was rewarded, although not in her lifetime. It would be hundreds of years later before the promised seed was born of a woman whose genealogy, get this, is traced through Seth. There's a second observation, though. The godly are not just committed to trusting the promises of God, but listen, the godly are also committed to proclaiming the name of God. Don't miss the contrast here that Moses is drawing for us between the ungodly and the godly. Cain's descendants are known for what? Man, they are known for building civilization and culture Without God. But Seth's descendants are known for proclaiming redemption in worship of God. One commentator beautifully captures the significance of men beginning to call on the name of the Lord when he writes Cain's firstborn and successors pioneer cities and civilized arts. But Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. And that's exactly what Seth's children did. They worshiped God. They called on the name of the Lord. In fact, the Hebrew concept of this idea of calling on the name of the Lord, it has two parts to it. It can mean to call on the Lord in prayer. And in that sense, it means that men began to take their faith in God seriously. They started to seek God through prayer and worship. And then this idea to call can also mean to proclaim publicly. And in those days, men began to publicly identify themselves as followers of the one true God. Now, let's be honest here. To call on the name of the Lord, to make that decision, is never easy in any circumstance. But it is always more difficult when the culture is going another direction when your friends at school are going this way and God calls you to live this way, when your neighbors are going this way and God says live this way, when your coworkers are doing this and God calls you to live this way. But in those dark days of moral depravity, a group of people rose up and they said, we belong to the Lord. We are His and we live by His values and we follow His word. Were they without sin? Were they perfect? Oh, no, no, no. We will see that they were filled with sin in next chapter, and in Genesis chapter 6 as well. But they believed in God's promise of redemption through the promised seed, and they were not ashamed to worship the living God in a world that worshiped human achievements. This is what God's people have always done throughout history. They proclaim redemption in the name of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is our only hope in life. Notice this in your notes. Civilizations rise and fall because of sin. Therefore, the only hope that you and I have, that our world has, that humanity has, is to call on the name of the Lord. This is the only hope for civilization. This is the only hope for our souls. This is the only hope for the church of Jesus Christ as well, to call on the name of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ. Peter declares in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the question for myself, the question for you here this morning is simple. Have you called on the name of the Lord for salvation? For the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life? Or, or like Cain, are you trying to make it in life without God? Are you trying to go your own way Live your own life and do it apart from the presence of God and His Word. Listen, it is never, never, never too late to call on the name of the Lord. If you look at this story and the world around you and say, Yeah, this world is messed up, then I encourage you to confess your part in it and to repent of your sin and to trust in the Lord. As Christ followers, we are far from perfect. We still sin, and we're still affected by this fallen world, but we also live with the hope of Jesus Christ, and we are now part of His glorious body, the church of Jesus Christ, and we eagerly wait for His return when He will come and He will establish His kingdom on this earth. Until then, we live by God's word, and we follow Jesus Christ, and we proclaim the hope of the gospel to a world without God. And we don't run from culture. We seek to redeem culture, and we seek to make culture to the glory of God. And as a church, we seek to bridge the gap and to be a light to a city darkened by sin. You say, why? Because as Christians, as Christ followers, we are Christ's ambassadors here on this earth. We represent another world, not this world, while we live in the midst of this one. I leave you with this quote from Dr. Ashford's book, Every Square Inch. Listen to what he says. Every aspect of human life and culture is ripe for Christian witness. Every dimension of culture, whether it is art, science, or politics... Is an arena in which we can speak about Christ with our lips and reflect Him with our lives. We thank God for the existence of culture and recognize whatever is good in it, while at the same time seeking to redirect whatever is not good toward Jesus Christ. That is our role as Christ followers in the midst of this city and in the culture in which we live, whether it's in school whether it's at work, whether it's in the neighborhood where you live, and whether it's right here in this community. That is what we are called to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how foolish we are to think that we can live without you. And yet perhaps there are some who are striving to do that even now. And so forgive us for trying to make it in life without you you and the truth of your word thank you for being not only the promise maker but also the promise keeper in sending your son to provide redemption through his death and resurrection And so God we ask that you would give us the grace to live by your word and to proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ it's in his name we pray amen Zach's gonna sing just a chorus one time I encourage you to use this time to call on the name of the Lord in prayer. Seek your heart to him. Give your heart to him and call on him.